commit that in prayer as well. All right, turn back to Genesis chapter 14 with me. As we look at that passage that Brother Rowan read for us this morning, and we are continuing our look at this comparison between Abraham and Lot, and this is the fourth message in this particular series, and I hope it's been a blessing to you so far. We're looking at Genesis 14, read from verses 1 to 4, just to start us off. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alasar, Shadolayamah, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, uh, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemabah, king of Zeboim, and the king of, of Bela, which is Zoah. All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Shadolayamah, in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll devote this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you, we, we thank you that we can trust it, you have preserved it for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would now speak to us through that word. I pray that you would simply use me as an instrument in your hand. And Father, that every word I speak may be in line with your truths and a blessing to my brethren. We pray for the leading of your spirit within our hearts now, that we might understand and live these things which we have learned. And I pray that you, you would grant us your grace in all things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the blessings that um, we had when uh, we got married, when Mary and I got married, was that we got a chance to go overseas. And most of you know we have an Italian background. So we thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to go and see family that we hadn't seen before and, uh, and see where they live. Um, neither of us had been overseas before, so the first trip we took was to Europe. And it was a, a big one. One of the things we um, uh, remembered during that time was a month we spent in Italy. And most of that was traveling around with a train, spending time with relatives, finding out how they lived and, and seeing what life was like there. One of the things that becomes very noticeable uh, about uh, places like Italy and European countries especially is the amount of castles that are there. And most of you know, if you've been there, there, are, there is a, a church on every hilltop and every top of every city, and there are castles everywhere. So they estimate in Italy alone there are some 20,000 castles. And the reason you have castles is that it's not just a big house, a castle, okay? A castle is a fortified house. So it's designed to be uh, impenetrable, and it's designed to be defendable. And so it tells us a bit about the history of a place like Italy, um, because during the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, as many call it, um, Italy was not a nation. It was divided up into many, many small kingdoms. Okay, So you had kings who were you know, in charge of that particular area, and another king who was in charge of that particular area. And so they weren't very large at all. In fact, a lot of them were just one castle with one small kingdom, and they had their little army, a little police force, and they had the people who were working around them in the fields, they would give to the king. Okay, so you had this, this system sort of uh, working out like that. By the time that Italy became united around 18, I think it was 70, um, there were six or seven main kingdoms. Sorry, there were six kingdoms in Italy and a, the papal state. So the, 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 the papacy has always had its own uh, separate sort of kingdom, let's say. Um, but within that, those seven kingdoms, you had a lot of other smaller chieftains or, or, or principalities, let's say, and they were answerable to each of those, each of those main kingdoms. So you had larger ones who had a lot of smaller ones and people who lived in those particular castles were called barons and, and like that. And they were the owners of the land and people would work for them. So it was like a feudal system. We, we live in a, uh, we're not used to a feudal system here. We live in a very unique uh, time in history, to be honest with you, because most time in history, people didn't own land. It was owned by a few and they got to work the land and then they got to actually give a percentage. They got to keep a percentage of what they grew on their land for their families, but the rest had to be given to the landowner, who was generally a king or a baron or someone like that. 
they owed their allegiance to those things. But you can imagine with so many different kingdoms in a very small place like Italy, that land of Italy, there are a lot of fights that occurred. Huh? There are a lot of conflicts that have occurred. And so you'd have the, the way to keep safe, if you have a lot of small kingdoms, is you, you form alliances <coughs> with other kings. And so much of history has to do with um, times when people would form alliances with other kings to keep yourself safe. And so if someone wanted to come and attack you, you were all compelled to join the fight. Because if you didn't support each other, who was, and you may be taken over one by one. So what we have in this particular passage today is a similar type of thing, where you have a lot of small kings and kingdoms joining together in alliances, but sometimes those alliances break down. Sometimes things don't go well. And so in the previous uh, chapter, we saw that Abraham and Lot had separated. So chapter 13, they get, to, they get to a point where they have so many assets, they have so many, um, so much livestock and so many uh, servants that um, they said it's, we can't live together here. There were fights that were occurring between their servants. And so Abraham said, well, it's probably better that we separate at this point. You take whichever part you want and I'll take whatever's left. And so we have a situation where Lot looked up, he saw the fertile plains of the land towards Sodom, and he said, I'm going for that one over there. So he took the best portion of the land. And then we see them separating at this particular point. So where are we now? Well, according to this passage, there are nine kingdoms with their kings in that area. And all of them were allied together and they owed their allegiance to probably the largest one the kingdom of elam and that was won by this guy who has the longest most difficult name shilalayama he was probably the he was probably not just the largest but in those days they probably extracted if you were the the biggest one you were able to extract um payments and tribute to look after the smaller ones. Does that make sense? So there was a, there was a, probably an arrangement that took place and that they were working together with for a number of years. Well, it says 12 years, it says there. And it held for 12 years. This, this alliance, this allegiance held together, but they owed their allegiance to Elam. The Elamites... This is, this is a long time ago here. We we're talking about Abraham's time. But the Elamites were still around during, um, you know, when Pentecost happened? The Elamites were around. So the Elamites, if you're just wondering where they may be situated, were situated, they had their, you know, their, where they lived in southern Iran. Okay, so if you know where, where Iran is, the south of Iran is where they existed and they were living not only in the time of Abraham but they were still in existence all the way uh, to the time of Jesus and the Jews were living among the Elamites and in the Elamite kingdom at that time so turn to Acts chapter 2 with me just to clarify that when the day of Pentecost was come the Bible says that there were many Jews in Jerusalem who had come from all over the world at that stage and they, have, they were already living in all of these different countries. So Acts chapter 2 verse 5. Now this is the beginning of the church here. Okay, so The day of Pentecost is when the church began. The church did not exist before this time. This is when the church started. When God sent the Holy Spirit to this world in a very special way that he'd never done before to inhabit his people because they had been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You see, people couldn't be inhabited and dwelt and sealed with the Holy Spirit before, but the Holy Spirit came upon them before. So there is a stark difference between what was happening in the Old Testament and what was about to happen. And this was the beginning of it. And so Acts chapter 2 verse 5 says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven now when this was noised abroad the multitude came together and were confounded 
because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites. Okay? And the dwellers of Mesopotamia, that's where um, Abraham came from originally, and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. So, so there's an arrangement that's taken place in this particular situation with these nine kingdoms who have formed an alliance and an allegiance and there was probably a system in place that Ela, the Elamites or the kingdom of Elam probably got the better deal, let's say. Okay, And it's a bit like, if you were to compare it to similar situations, a bit like having the US, okay, and then the US will protect you okay, if you're a smaller nation in some sort of an arrangement. I suppose it's similar to the US and NATO at the moment. The difference is that uh, the Elamites will probably asking for money as well. And so they were building up their wealth and their own armies at the expense of the smaller ones too. So at this particular point, something happened. Something happened to this alliance. And in the 13th year, there's a rebellion, which means there was five of them that said, we're not part of this anymore. We've had enough. We don't want to be part of this alliance. We're going to go our own way. And so it says, Berah, king of Sodom, with, with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, and Shemabeh, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar, five kings rebelled against Elam. Right? But three kings remained loyal to him. The other ones refused to fight with him and for him anymore. But then something happens. So in the 14th year, so 12 years they were in alliance. On the 13th year, you had five that said, no, we've had enough of this alliance. We're going our own way. In the 14th year, look at what he does. So in verse 5, it says, And in the 14th year came Shedorlaomer and the kings that were with him. Okay, they're the, uh, the, four, the, the, the three that were left with him. That's four together. And smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shiva, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their... Mount Seir unto, Al, uh, unto Alparam, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enmishvat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazaz Ontamar. Now, are any of those particular ones the ones that rebelled? No. They're a completely different lot of people. Why would if he if he had um, if they had split away from him if they rebelled against his authority and in the agreement that they had, why did he go and and uh, wipe out these other ones which probably seemed to be smaller? Well, you probably want to do a bit of cleaning house. When you lose when you lose or become weakened, what you do is you get rid of all the ones that could potentially become threats because if they then join themselves to the the ones that rebelled, hey, they might turn against us and overpower us. So what he's gone and done, he's gone and done a preemptive thing. And he's, he's tried to knock out all these smaller ones that are around, so they're wiped out. They've got no chance of actually forming together and, and being a threat to him. So, verse 8 then says, And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admar, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Belah, the same is Zoah. And they joined battle with them in the Vale of Sidon. So they joined. So these guys who had said, we're not part of you anymore, all of a sudden said, all right, we're in. And we're going to fight against the Elamites and those ones that were going around doing what they were doing. And so the five kings rebelled against Shedolaimah seize their chance to rid themselves of his threat now okay because you know when you're busy fighting someone else uh maybe you've actually weakened yourself and we're thinking now's our best opportunity to actually get rid of this guy because he's going to cause us problems if he's doing this 
is going to cause the problems down the track as well. But their plan didn't go as they expected. And so they, they arrived at this place, okay, where it says that they, they um, the, the veil of Siddim. Look at verse 9 and 10. All right, so they've built up the strength, the courage, to go and try and get rid of uh, this guy. So verse 9 says, With the Shador Laamar, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Sidon was full of slime pits. Not the best place you want to be fighting a battle. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountains. So, Sodom and Gomorrah, it seems, were the two largest out of that group of five, because it mentions only them now. And they are probably the, the largest ones who were in unison together. They lost. And it was probably due to the fact that there were slime pits there and they got bogged down. And so they didn't, it didn't achieve what they were expecting to achieve. And they ended up running away. It says that the, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They took off. Their armies fell. And whatever who was left was what ran off to the actual mountains. Now, in those days, which is a little bit different today, but probably the same today as well, there was a saying that when something like, to the victor go the spoils. Now, the spoils of war, okay, means that when you defeat a city or a town or a people, guess what you get to do? Take everything. Whatever you like, you get to take the whole lot. You can take their, their cattle, you can take their all their livestock, you can take their wealth, whatever it is, you can just take it all away with you. And you can even take away people if you like, because they've now subjugated, they can become your slaves. And that's exactly what we see happen here. It says in verse 11, it says, and they took all the goods. So Sodom and Gomorrah have lost. And now the Elamites and those that were with him arrive at Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says, and took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. So they've taken everything. Okay, they've cleaned, they've cleaned them out. They've cleaned them up. So gold, silver, weapons, food, people, the whole lot. Whatever they thought was valuable, they probably left some of the older people there because that might not have been useful as um as as servants okay but they've taken whoever they thought had value they've gone off with them now they've taken slaves who have they taken as well they've taken lot and it says in verse 12 and they took lot abram's brother's son who dwelt in sodom and his goods and departed so they took him and all the stuff that he had accumulated and there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, the brother of Anna. And these were confederate with Abraham. Now, what a terrible situation. Taken captive, losing all your belongings in such a way, not knowing what they could do whatever they wanted with you. They could have had him as a slave, killed him whenever they wanted to. And so you hear... Abraham hears a message that his nephew has been taken captive along with everyone from Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what's interesting here? Verse, a few interesting things about these two verses. This is the very first time we hear the word Hebrew. Very first time in the Bible that it mentions that Abram was a Hebrew. And so we know that in, in those days, as you've seen in previous verses, there were Amorites and, and uh, Elamites and, and so on and so on. So each one was considered a people. But this is the first time that we hear this word Hebrew, that Abraham was referred to as a Hebrew. And look, the, the origin of the term, just for our interest's sake, um, is not precisely known. That the, uh, the, This particular term Hebrew, not even the Jews are certain about where it started. Some have speculated 
that it started with Eber, okay, and that they were the descendants of Eber, but that's going back six generations before Abram. So why would they particularly pick one guy six generations back? So that's only one particular theory. The other theory, though, which may fit quite well, but the main theory is that the Jewish word Ivri, um, where we get the, na the name Hebrew from, means to come from the other side. Okay, to come from the other side, who or one who was passed over. Now, that probably means that they gave him that name because Abraham passed over what? The Euphrates River. He had come from Mesopotamia and he had to pass over this, this huge river, this well-known river that divided okay, uh, the Canaan from the northern parts. So you have the situation where he's called a name which means to cross over or one who was crossed over. And I suspect it probably means that he crossed over the Euphrates River. And they probably gave him that name. Oh, that guy. That guy that came from on the other side. You know, that guy. So he, that's probably ended up stuck. It's a bit like the term Baptists. You realize we didn't give ourselves that name. Baptists. We were called Baptists. You know those guys that keep on baptizing people again? That don't accept the infant baptism? And they go and rebaptize. And so the original name that we had was the rebaptizers or the Anabaptists. And then they just shortened it to Baptists and that was the end of story. And we kept it. Okay. So it's significant, I think, that this term from on from across the other side. I think because if you go to Joshua chapter 24, verse 3. Four times, Joshua, when the people of Israel have entered in back into their promised land, he makes a particular statement four times when he's describing Abraham with respect to the place they had come. And if you look at it, I'll just give you share one of them with you. Joshua chapter 24, verse 3. And Joshua's making this, this speech to his people who this is now hundreds of years later hundreds of years they've been in egypt they've been captured there for a long time and so he's making this 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 speech to his people and he says in joshua 24 3 and i took this is where sorry this is where god's speaking to uh, to him he says and i took your father abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Four times that term on the other, from the other side of the flood actually is mentioned in the book of Joshua. And I think it's probably going hand in hand with the fact that he was from the other side. And the Canaanites saw them as coming from the other side. But it would be a fitting description of Abraham who had been promised the land while he was still in Mesopotamia and he'd come across to the inhabitants of this land which didn't recognize him and he didn't know them and I suppose if you look at that particular description it may also be true of us from another aspect is that we are from the other side okay the Bible tells us that we no longer belong to this world that we are strangers and pilgrims and foreigners to this place we belong to the other side we are literally people from the other side and so i think we need to understand how important that is for us if abraham was seen as the man who came from the other side then how much more true should it be of us do people actually see us as the ones who are from the other side who are the citizens of heaven because the bible tells us that we are citizens of heaven we are no longer citizens of this earth we are called to be ambassadors and lights to this world but for all intents and purposes we do not belong here in fact as we live our lives in this world it should become increasingly more clear that we don't fit in and if we fit in there may be a problem okay we are not called to fit in. Now, I'm not saying you can't have, you know, you can't be nice to your neighbours and, you know, enjoy a game of football or whatever else it may be. That's, that's beside the point. The question is, do we fit into the system of this world? Do we belong here? And do we understand that we have a mission? 
Jesus was sent on a mission to save people from their sin. You and I have not been left here to take our ease and leisure and build up wealth because we are on a mission. And that mission is led by our Saviour, who works through, guess who? You and me. So remember, when you think about Abraham and the term Hebrew as one coming from the other side, that we are, from a spiritual sense, from a very real sense, the ones from the other side now. And so the other thing I want you to notice in this particular passage, and there's just these few verses, is that Abraham was also in the Confederacy. Did you notice that? It says that he was allied together with these other guys, the Amorites and uh, and these three brothers over here, the three brothers, Mamre, Eskol, and Anna, who were probably, who had probably had small kingdoms as well of their own. And Abraham looks as if he was a very wise neighbor and someone who actually was a good neighbor to those people. He didn't fight against the people that were there at that particular point. He didn't drive them out. He didn't try to kill them. He didn't do... He was living in a peaceable situation with them. And you know what? It's okay to live at peace with your neighbours. It's okay. We're called to live at peace with those around us. There's nothing wrong with being a good neighbour and being a blessing to people around you, saved and unsaved. We are called to be an absolute blessing to them. You can be a good example to your neighbours of what it means to love what it means to share, what it means to be a good neighbour, what it means to be caring, what it means to be patient, and all those different things that, that neighbours appreciate. You know, when you have one bad neighbour, it can make life really hard for you. you know? So don't be the bad neighbour. <laughs> be a good neighbour. And Abraham, I believe, was a good neighbour. And he worked with these guys he said, well, I want to live in peace with you guys, but let's just back each other up if someone else comes along and uh, wants to make trouble here. And they agreed. Abraham was a good neighbor, but he was able to do that without being drawn into their sin. They may have been living a very different life to him, but he didn't get wrapped up in what they were doing and how they were doing and entered into their sin but he could still be a good neighbor regardless of that. Okay? Because you can still be a witness to Christ or for Christ and have a good testimony in front of people who actually are opposed to what you believe. You can do that without being drawn into their lifestyle and their sin. So the meaning of loving your neighbor as yourself is very much wrapped up in that. Okay? So. The third point that strikes me in these couple of verses is where Lot is living. Eumonius says that he's living where? In Sodom. Well, the last time we saw him, he had separated from, uh, from Abram and he saw the fertile plains and he said, I'm going to go in that direction over there. You can take the, you know, the dry place back there. I'm going in that direction. And it says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Okay, But now it says they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. Okay. So just go back to chapter 13 just for a moment, just to refresh our, our memories here. Genesis 13, 10 to 13. 13, 10. Verse and Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were, now this is the important part here, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Were they bad? Oh. Okay, I think it makes it, it makes it very clear. They were wicked, they were sinners, and not just a bit. They were those two things exceedingly. And so um, 
the next thing we find he's dwelling literally in Sodom, not among the cities, in Sodom. He's chosen to live his life in Sodom, despite the fact that people in Sodom or the men of Sodom were exceedingly evil. What was Lot doing living in Sodom? How did he end up living in there? Despite the fact that the lives of these men was evil, Lot makes a decision to live in the actual city. And it seems to me that Lot was probably more preoccupied about the benefits of living in a city compared to maybe avoiding that type of life. You see, while Abraham, there's no mention of Abraham being drawn into the sins of, of, of maybe pagan beliefs, now all of a sudden Lot's drawn into that particular thing and he's actually now an inhabitant of that city. It seems that Lot became comfortable with sin around him. Why else would you move into a city? As with anything in life, if you see something often enough, you'll become desensitized to it. Okay? Um, it will no longer affect you as much as it did at the beginning. It will not grieve you as much as it did at the beginning. And that's not just true of sin. That is true of everything in life. You ever seen starving children on the TV? You know those children from Africa and they show them emaciated and with, with blown up bellies. Um, who, gets, who gets moved to tears when they say that now? You still do. Praise God. Because I don't as much anymore. And the reason I've seen so much of it, you, you, you learn to switch off, don't you? That's part of who we are. Eventually, you see pain enough, you see people in pain long enough and you get used to it and you become numb to their pain. And that the fact is that we do that because we don't want to experience the pain. We don't experience grief every time we see something that's bad. Okay, But that's the way the flesh works. The flesh will work to try to numb you to things that cause you pain because it's always seeking to protect itself. It doesn't want to experience pain. Your flesh doesn't want to go through grief and anguish and suffering. It doesn't want that. So it will find a way for you to avoid those things. You know, last week I gave you the example of a doctor, you know, having to tell someone the bad news about cancer, right? And how difficult that is and how important it is to tell the truth because the truth in that particular instance is very important. If you, if you are too afraid to tell someone they've got cancer, well, they might die of that cancer, right? Uh, their feelings aren't as important as the actual truth. But can you imagine a doctor who was told the first person they're going to die of cancer, the second person they're going to die of cancer, the third person they're going to die of cancer, the fourth? You know, by the time you get down the line, I wonder whether that same doctor is going to experience the same anguish telling that person what they've got. Naturally, people become blunt and numb to those things. And it's a natural defense mechanism that it's built into our old nature. But we are told in the Bible, and this goes against this particular nature. You see, the problem with Christianity yeah, is that it actually tells you to go and get more suffering. That's what makes it so hard to live. It goes against the grain. And I know that there are, there are spiritual teachings such as Buddhism, right? And I call I use spiritualism as, as a very, very loose term, okay? Because it's got nothing to do with spiritualism. But Buddhism says to avoid all those things and anything that might cause you any type of suffering or pain, just to avoid it. And Christianity says, uh, no, you go and get some more for yourself. Which makes Christianity so much harder to live than other faiths. The natural defense mechanism that's built into us wants to numb us to that stuff. It wants, it's telling us to avoid it over and over again. But the Bible says that we are to work against this natural tendency of our hearts and minds for the kingdom of God. 
And I want you to, I'm going to get you to turn to Romans chapter 12 with me. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read through verses 9 to 21. And I want you to ask yourself, as we're reading through these exhortations, as we're reading through these, these, um, these, this counsel, okay, from the Apostle Paul, I want you to ask yourself, do these things come naturally to us? Or are these things always things that we have to try and push against and work and put effort into? Okay, so have a think about whether any of these things come naturally to you as a person. Romans 12, 9 says, let love be without dishonest, without dissimulation, which means dishonesty. Don't have any hypocrisy in your love. Abhor that which is evil which means hate it. Cleave to that which is good. How easy is that to do? Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Does that take effort or does that just come naturally? In honour, preferring one another. In other words, honour the people that are around you. Does that come naturally? Not slothful in business. I failed there. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that do that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend. That means go down to men of low estate. Is that easy to do? Be not wise in your own conceits. Now don't, don't think yourself more highly. Recompense to no man evil for evil. About holding back vengeance and holding back Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, they shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Is any of that easy? Not one of those things are easy. Because none of those things come naturally. In fact, every one of those things requires effort for us to actually do in the slightest. And so there's always an effort that's required to do these things. None of those things come naturally because our flesh does not want it. But consider now for a moment how much harder it is to do these particular things when you are surrounded by sin and you're comfortable with it. You're trying to do these things, but you're surrounded by temptations and sin and you've become, you've become comfortable with it. It doesn't offend you anymore. It doesn't shock you anymore. It doesn't upset you anymore. There's no grief over it, not for yourself and not for other people. How can you do these things when you have that as well? The same nature within us that requires constant effort to do good things, constant effort to reach out, because we know there's suffering at the other end of that line every time we do it. Because every time you open yourself up to love someone is the time you've opened the door for them to hurt you. And so our natural instinct is, no, 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 no. Just shut that door. And then I'll try this door over here. Oh, I don't like what's behind that door. Shut that one quickly. Let me try door number two now. The Lord says, I want you to go through pain here as well. And we say, uh, Lord, have you got any other doors? Sin requires us also to be vigilant. To be on the lookout that we're not getting comfortable with it. Because your flesh, as much as it hates to do the good stuff, 
loves to do the bad stuff. And so there's a constant effort from both angles. Our fallen nature becomes is already comfortable with sin. It gravitates to it. And so it requires effort to keep away from the sin and not get comfortable with it. And I'll tell you, maybe give you a couple of pointers about how to do that. Um, we need to be brokenhearted about it. When we see it in ourselves and we see it in people around us. Sin should break our hearts. Because sin is contrary to the one that loves us. Sin is a thing that he had to suffer and die for. Sin breaks God's heart. And, there are, and sin is the cause of people that we love heading to a place of eternal damnation. We need to be brokenhearted about sin. And we need to be hateful towards it. You want to hate something? You want to put all your energy into hating something? Then hate sin. Don't hate the people. Hate the sin. Okay, because sin is like a disease. It's like getting cancer. And there's some people who think they've got it good when they have that type of disease. But it takes effort to hate something. But hate we must. For the alternative to hate is what? Becoming comfortable and love. And so that's a very dangerous broad spectrum here. Either you hate sin, and if you don't hate sin, you are somewhere heading towards loving it. We have to hate it. In fact, that, that, uh, those two verses, Ephesians chapter 4.26, where it says to us, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil, is not about being angry with other people, but don't hit them. It means being angry with sin and hating it. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath means don't end that hatred. If I, see, if I said to you, don't let the sun go down on something, what does it mean? Don't let it finish. So when it says don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, it's not your wrath for other people, it's your wrath against sin. Don't let your sun go down upon that wrath. Be angry about it and don't sin and don't give a place to the devil in your life. Don't give a foothold to him because once he does, he will entrench himself. And that's the problem with sin. Once you start it with it in your life, it takes root in your life. Just like the word of God, you can plant the word of God. It begins to take root. It grows and then produces fruit, right? Well, the Bible tells us that when you allow sin into your life, it will do a similar thing. The difference is, it's like a weed that just keeps on growing all over the place. And then eventually it takes over all of your life. And the, it grows a root, it, it, it sprouts, it produces leaves. And you know what, what the fruit of, of sin is? Death. So don't play around with it. Don't give it a place in your life. And don't get comfortable with it. Don't surround yourself with it. Avoid it at all costs. We should hate sin with such a passion that we want nothing to do with it. We see it as, as so wicked and so evil and so dangerous that we want nothing at all to do with it. Don't be like Lot who said to himself, hmm, where am I going to live? I'm living in the plain, but you know what? Over there, it's going to be a whole lot of benefit for me if I live in the city. I can do a lot of good business over there. So I'm going to go and live over there. And so what did he sacrifice? He sacrificed his peace. Because look at 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Because when Lot went to live in Sodom, was he living the good life? Well, was he living the good life? The question is, he may have been wealthy. He may have been doing a roaring trade with all the stuff that he was growing and all his cattle and all his, all his livestock and everything that he, that he had going on there. 
But the question is, what, what did Lot sacrifice when he moved into Sodom? And have a look at this. 2 Peter 2.7 says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, vexed with the filthy lifestyle and, and choices that people are making of the wicked people around him. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, do you know what the word vex means? The word to be vexed means to be exceedingly pained and tormented. So why would you put yourself in a situation where you're tormented by you might hate it, he hated it, didn't like it, but he's tormented, he's completely surrounded by it every day. And so what did he sacrifice? He sacrificed his peace. How would you have to be vexed every day of your life? Every day. And what did he do about it? Doesn't say doesn't say anything particular about it, but it says he's vexed every day. And you know the term vexed in the KJV most places where the word vexed is used is when someone's demon possessed that when someone someone who is who is vexed with an evil spirit okay or vexed with a with a, a devil is being tormented so much they can't stand it and it's using the same word for someone tormented with a devil about lot not that he was possessed but he just was suffering every day. But did he give it up? No. Because when you grab onto something, you don't want to let it go sometimes. What was so important that you had to live in that city lot? What was worth putting up with daily torment? I don't know. But he does. Maybe he had to admit that he had made a bad choice. You know how hard it is to admit you've made a bad decision to other people? Mm -hmm. To go back and say, oh, messed up. Sorry. Maybe it was that. Or maybe there was just so much wealth that was pouring into him that he couldn't let go. The same temptations exist for us today. We are tempted from every angle. Living in this city, as much as I think, I think Melbourne is... You can live godly in this in this city, okay? But we're surrounded by sin. I mean, I'd rather be in Melbourne than Sydney, if you know what I mean. Considering the wonderful weekend they just had. Um, so, my sometimes you don't get the option. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes the people you work with are going to be swearing sometimes they're going to be telling bad jokes sometimes they're going to be people that that dishonor god sometimes you can't actually avoid that huh sometimes there are things you, you can't change but where you have an option to not be around sin take it please take it and don't inflict more upon yourself choose and be wise about what you watch on tv what you listen to who you spend time with don't vex yourself because the likelihood is it's going to become part of you without you realizing it. You'll begin to become comfortable with it. And before, before long, you'll start to reap the benefits or the fruits of that. Well, not really benefits at all. The only time that we are called really to be comfortable or be around sin more than what we have to is when you're reaching into this dark world to, to pull people out of it. If that's what you're doing, then go for it. If that's your purpose. But don't use it as an excuse to gravitate towards sin. So the problem is, is that when sin, you become comfortable with sin, you surround yourself by sin, um, it will take you prisoner one day. And that's what's happened with Lot. Now he's a prisoner. He's actually a slave. To someone else and does he have a chance to save himself no he can't save himself abraham we're going to see becomes a picture of christ who saves so look at verse 14 to 16 as we come to the end of this message 
It says, and when Abraham, verse 14 says in Genesis 14, and when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Praise God for that. So what do we see? We see Abraham loved his nephew. He loved him. Yeah? And Abraham risked his life to save his nephew. Notice Abraham didn't say, well, that was his fault. He chose to live in Sodom. Therefore, he can wear the con. Did he say that? No. He immediately said, no, we've got to do something about this. He didn't say, I told you so. Now you have to live with the consequences of that. He didn't do that. You know, how many times have we been tempted when we see people making bad decisions around us to say, well, that's your fault. You chose that path. You can wear it now. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to do that ever. We are called to help wherever we possibly can. Abraham loved Lot too much to let that particular thinking get in the way. The Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. It's not your own, brothers. So when you genuinely love, you will cover other people's sins and mistakes so that you can help save them. We've been called to love in this way that covers a multitude of sins. And Abraham's love carried Lot's sin, Lot's mistakes. It bore them. Abraham believed that Lot was alive. And so it inspired him to arm his men and, and get on the move. He believed by faith that the Lord had called him to rescue Lot and his family. And faith stirred him into action. You see, faith without works is dead. If Abraham had said, oh, it'd be nice to go and rescue Lot now. It's a shame that is. I mean, what are we going to do? Uh, do we send them a note? Should we write them a letter, maybe? No. He went straight into action. Because the faith that he had drove him. It pushed him to action. It pushed him to work. So he bore his nephew's mistakes. He believed in the grace of God. He had faith. And that faith drove him to action. And he hoped that he and his armed men would prevail. And so he created a strategy to overcome the enemy by night, that they would prevail over the enemy and rescue Lot alive and all that he had. You know, when you have genuine love for someone else, it builds confidence that God can do something. When you give up on someone and you say, no more time for you, that is not love. Abandoning does not mean, never is never a picture of love. And so Abraham rode out with his men into battle against four kings that had been victorious against other ones already. These, were no, these weren't small armies. These guys had already had a lot of victories before. And he endured the battle and the pursuits. Because to chase down an army to two different cities here would have been exhausting for him. But he kept going. And in the end, Abram's love for Lot prevailed. He won his nephew back, his family and his goods. And this is a wonderful picture of love that we've been called to show towards others, especially our brethren in the faith. You'll notice here it says it calls Lot Abram's brother, not his nephew. Brother? Well, it's not exactly his brother, is it? It's his nephew, but his brother, he was the other brother Hebrew from the other side and he fought for him 
So my counsel to you today is fight for each other. Fight and don't give up. Don't give up on each other. Continue to love one another as he has loved us. Let the love of Christ inspire you to fight for that which is good. And if you've noticed, I've pulled out those things which Abraham did from 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8, which we read this morning. That love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never fails. Abraham didn't fail. And Abraham became a picture of Christ who did not fail. Abraham is only a faint picture of what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. We were taken captive by sin with only death to look forward to. But Jesus, with the great love with which he loved us, took on the armies of Satan and on that lonely cross bore all of our sins upon himself. Believing the father would not abandon him to the grave, he endured the suffering, the shame and the death so that he could give us eternal life as a gift. His love did not fail. That's why we're here. He didn't fail, but we've been called to love others and be inspired by his love for us. There are many lost in this world. There are too many who are heading to an eternity without God in a place of absolute torment. Unless we ride out against the wickedness in this world with the gospel and the sword of the spirit, they'll be lost and they won't see the love of God. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Frank, for that indeed challenging sermon. Definitely challenged me. And, you know, living in a world full of sin today, it's important that we as Christians, we ought to be leaning on Him. So it's important that we do that. Uh, and if you're not leaning on Him today, or or if you haven't been, please please lean. So this brings us to our final hymn for this uh, this morning's uh, service, which is Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. So if you could please turn your hymns to 460, and we'll be upstanding for this one. On the first... Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for a beautiful day, Lord, that you've given us. We thank you for the message that went out today, Lord. We pray that it touched many hearts. Lord, we thank you for everyone who's here today. I pray that you bless our time of fellowship, Lord, as we uh, continue fellowshipping with one another, Lord. I pray that you bless our conversation. 
Pray that uh, you bless our week ahead, Lord, and you bring us back safely again next week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.